Greetings, Jesus' name. It's been a blessing to have been here already and heard what we have heard. The, um, it's been a blessing to be where we were this past week, too. I know Tim shared, and of course he missed a good part of it, but he did have a part in this last week. Um, Wilmer Funk was sharing. Wilmer Funk was a father amongst us this last week, and he uh, he has 13 children and 25 cows and tried to make a living on that. And he talked about trusting the Lord and when there was no money and when there was things break and uh, he had a number of different things. I don't remember all of them. Exhorting us as fathers to trust the Lord. Then his coat was taken. One evening after the service, he went to go home Thursday evening. No coat. There's another coat there like it. It had mints in, but his had car keys in it. They had no idea who this was. It was probably not one, probably not somebody that came to the seminar because most of those were still there. So the Lord tested the preacher, and the Lord does that. So we uh, put this around on the WhatsApp and... I think that's when you realized, brother, that you had his code right. So the Lord used him this week, even though he wasn't there most of the time. And for the rest of you that weren't there, I'd say next year, maybe it's another year. <laughs> okay, you can turn to First Peter. First Peter chapter 1. Um, yeah, we'll move ahead here. In the last message that I had, we had Paul, Peter was encouraged them and informing, informing them of their hope that they have, the living hope that they have by virtue of being a child of God, they have an inheritance. Just think it. Just by virtue of being a child of God, you have an inheritance. This is not rewards. This is not salvation. This is it's just by virtue of being a child of God. And it's not just in a common million dollar inheritance. A common million dollar inheritance. Because a common million dollar inheritance can be defiled. It can fade away. In fact, um, now this, I don't know about inheritances, but they have done studies on people who have won the lottery. And within a few years, most of them are worse off financially. Now, I don't know how it is with inheritance, but I am sure inheritances have destroyed uh, quite a few people. A million dollars might not be good for you or me, but here's an inheritance that not only does he give, but in the same time, he also guards us. And that when we get that inheritance, we'll act to be able to have it undefiled, um, unfading, and, um, and incorrupt. 
It's a divine inheritance. So that's what we had last time. This kind of reality ought to give us faith and keep us going. And this inheritance gets more dear to me as I get older. As my things in my body begin to slow down or wear out or begin to fade away, yeah. (laughs) But even if you're young here today, life is just a blink. So... So we'll read the scripture here, First Peter, and I'll start at chapter 1 and verse 3, and we'll read the section, then we'll have a few verses we'll go over. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, Reserved in heaven for you, you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than that of gold, than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Why don't we just pause and let's just bow our heads for a word of prayer. Lord, we are thankful this morning as we look into your word and you have just expounded to us the clarity of, the clarity of the future and the clarity of your purpose for us now, and also your care and love for us. I pray this morning, Lord, you would guide us as we study your word, that you would speak to us where we are at in our life. Lord, um, use your word and your spirit to move us to where you desire us to be. Help us to be have open hearts, hearts that are receptive, and prepared for your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The last time we had looked at the future, this morning we'll look at the present. And that's mostly in the verse here, wherein ye greatly rejoice, not you rejoicing in that inheritance, though now, now, for a season if need be, Ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Uh, English Standard Version says, You have been grieved by various trials. And the question arises, How can you rejoice and yet be in heaviness? Rejoicing and heaviness, how do they fit together? How can it be both? And I found... The title of the message is, The Christian is Unusual. Uh, the reason I have that title is because my, my message lacks a, a theme the entire way through, so I had to pick one of the themes. Um, A.W. Tozer, talking about this idea that 
a Christian is a paradox. He's two things. So he is rejoicing, but he's also in heaviness. So he, he says, he says it this way. He said, it's a true Christian is a strange person. And he emphasized true because Christian can mean a lot, but a true Christian is a strange person. If you want, he said this, if you want to be a Christian, you need to agree to be different, so different that you may be considered to be somewhat disturbed mentally. Hmm. <laughs> That's why I'm saying he said that, okay? I'm not, I'm not making any judgment here, okay? <laughs> but a Christian doesn't act quite rationally. And now he gave some definition to that. A true Christian is dead, and yet he lives forever. He dies, he died, and yet he lives in Christ, and he lives by the death of another. And if another hadn't died, he couldn't live. He saves his life by losing it, and he is in danger of losing his life by trying to save it. And this strange soul, this true Christian, when he wants to go up, he starts by going down. Because God's way up is always down. And that is contrary to the wisdom of the earth. But God is wiser than man. And if he wants to win, he always surrenders. Instead of slucking it out, this strange man, he surrenders to a third party and then he wins without firing a shot. He surrenders to God and wins over everybody else. Another thing that he is, is that he is strongest when he is weakest. And he is weakest when he is strongest. And his strength lies in his weakness, and his weakness lies in his strength. When he gets up thinking he's strong, he's always weak. And when he gets down on his knees and he thinks he is weak, he is strong. A true Christian, take this, a true Christian is poor, and yet he makes others rich. Put Peter and Paul and Paul and John Bunyan in that category. People who were poor but made others rich by their lives and what they did and what they accomplished. The Laodicean Christians were rich, but they were poor. He is in the least danger when he is fearful and trusting God, and he is in the most danger when he is not fearful and self-confident. He is the most sinless when he feels the most sinful, and he is the most sinful when he feels the most sinless. This strange fellow has the most when he gives more away, and he has the least when he keeps his things. Sometimes he gets the most done when he isn't doing anything at all. When God sets him aside or makes him sit down for a while, 
Sometimes he goes further when he is standing still. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. A Christian loves someone he has never seen and he pleases someone he is afraid of. He fears God with trembling reverence and yet he draws near to this God. He draws near with the full assurance of faith and yet he is trembling with holy fear. This man is saved now, but he is expecting to be saved later. He is looking for a salvation that is going to be revealed in the last time. So you can make up your mind. Well, is he getting saved now? Is he saved now? Is he getting saved later? And the idea is both. He is, he has life now and he's also looking for life. This Christian has been born on earth and has never been anywhere else, but he's also a citizen of another country. A citizen of heaven. He is walking on earth and yet he is seated in heaven. Also, he is nothing and he knows he is nothing. He is the scum and offscouring of the earth and yet he is the apple of God's eye. He's God's pet. So, with all that paradoxes there, does it make any, is it any surprise that he can be in heaviness in trials and yet be rejoicing? Because he is a Christian. He is a stranger and a pilgrim. A Christian is so different from the world. He can never be a part of the world system. We heard that a lot this week. Peter says it this way later on. He says, "Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises or virtues of him that who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And we heard this one evening, John says, John, John in 1 John says, the whole world lieth in wickedness. Paul says in 1 Galatians 1.4, who gave himself for our sin that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. So that is the Christian. He is very different. Now I'm going to go down a little bit of a bunny trail. Um, the reason I'm doing this is for contrast, okay? Okay. It's for contrast. I'm going to go down a bunny trail of, uh, there's an article I found that described the evangelical, um, it did an analysis for the last uh, maybe 40, 50 years, something like that. Yeah, probably 50 years. Did an analysis and I found it very intriguing because I found it intriguing for the contrast. So follow me through with this. Um, how... There are many ways that Christians have have interacted with the world, how they have functioned in the world. There's many ways that different Christians think we should live in this world. There are some ways that might be similar, but then there are some ways that are very varied. And the idea stems out of this, that Christians are on earth for a purpose. We are here for a purpose. We're here to accomplish something. We're here for God. When we get saved, God doesn't just take us away. 
we are left here to do something. Like the song goes, we'll work till Jesus comes. And as that one song goes, he said, we'll work in the morning light, we'll work in the noonday heat, we'll work when the shadows start to lengthen, and we'll even, um, not postpone, we'll even um, forego retirement and work to the last fading light. <laughs> That's what the one song says. The point is, Christians have work to do. This he is different, and his differentness is to have an impact on the world. So here, let's go um, to this analysis. I think it would help a little bit if I write the three main things on the board here. This board is, if it would be bigger, I could do a little better, but I'll, I'll do the best here. Um, he did a, this man, Alan Wren, did an analysis about the U.S. and details different cultural realities in different times. And how the, most of the part, the evangelical church related to those realities. And the main theme is, is that general culture has become more and more secular in the last 50 years. So we're going to go pre 1994. At that time, we had a positive world. Actually, you have to realize that I'm using this as a contrast because if you really believe what I read about that strange Christian, there was never any positive. <laughs> uh, the general society would never view that person as positive uh, in that sense. But here's, here's, what it, here's what it means. Society at large before 1994, which is give or take a few years, retains a mostly positive view of Christianity. To be known as a good church-going man, remains part of being an upstanding citizen. Publicly, publicly, being a Christian is a status enhancer. Christian moral norms are the basic moral norms of society, and violating them can bring negative consequences. Then we have the, uh, the time period of 1994 to 2014. And we have a neutral world. And that is described as the society takes a neutral stance on Christianity. Christianity is no longer a privileged status, but it's not necessarily disfavored. Being publicly known as a Christian is neither positive nor negative. Uh, far as the impact on your social status. Christianity is a valid option within a pluralistic public square. Christian moral norms retain some residual effect. Then, 2014 to the present, we have a negative view. negative worldview of Christianity. Society has come to have a negative view of Christianity 
Being known as a Christian is a social negative, particularly in the elite dominant uh, domains of society. Christian morality is expressly repudiated and seen as a threat to the public good and the new public moral order. Subscribing to Christian moral views or violating the secular moral order brings negative consequences. It's been a change in society. And the subject right now is how should a Christian relate to the world they are in? Now I'm going to tell you in this, in these, how the evangelicals mostly related that this is broad brushed, okay? But it's, it, it is, it is there. In the, in the positive worldview, pre-94, there were one dominant and a, a one that started later, late on in that time. Um, the, the, the strategies, there were two strategies given. One was the culture war and the other was the seeker sensitivity. And in the neutral world, the, uh, it was cultural engagement was the main strategy that was used. Have you ever heard of the culture war? You ever heard of that term? Culture war. Now that culture warriors can actually come both ways, but when we're talking about a culture war, we're talking about, well, let's, let's look here. The culture war strategy is something that Christians took up mainly in the 70s, it started probably, and became known as the religious right. And one of the names that was given back then was called moral majority. The idea was is that, that most of the people is, is a positively, most of society uh, is positive towards Christianity, and it's just to get them together and make a make an impact. Now this arose. Society was secularizing. It was getting more and more secular in the sixties and seventies. And so, uh, the, when that, that was the sexual revolution, abortion, prayer was taken out of schools, and evolution was being, uh, the only view, origins view taught in the government schools. And so, things were changing. And so, you had a rise of culture warriors. They're going to, they were combative, and they were militant, and, they had, uh, the idea was to war and to fight and to overpower and to dismantle the enemy. Move the country back to the way it was. So that was the culture warriors. A second strategy that Christians took towards the end of that, probably around 1990, I'm not exactly sure, was called the seeker sensitive movement. Um, this gave rise to big mega churches that were built, and uh, the most famous one is uh, Rick Warren and Saddleback Church, because you had Bill Hybel and Willow Creek. And the idea of seeker sensitive still has the idea that there's a huge amount of people out there that are positive towards Christianity. Bill Hybel went to the streets of Chicago and he talked to people who didn't go to church. He found out 
what they, what it would take for them to go to church. When he found out what it would take for them to go to church, he provided it and they came. And he had a huge church. Seeker sensitivity. That was a strategy that as, as we as the people of God are on the earth, we're supposed to work for God. That was a strategy that was taken by a, a group of people. Uh, these churches downplayed or eliminated denominational affiliations and traditions and they adopted contemporary music and some other things. Uh, one other thing they did operate in is they operated therapeutically, which means that they their messages and their programs were geared towards improving yourself and your relationships it's therapeutic it's to it's to make you a better well-rounded person so they are quite therapeutic in their approach um, Henry Cloud which is assistant Christian psychologist was often spoken at the um, at Willow Creek their approach they were approachable rather and non-threatening. They were actually the opposite of the religious right, which were combative and take over. And they were, they were, they went from this area and then they went strong into the neutral world area era. They didn't denounce secular culture, but they confidently engaged that culture on its own term. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm ahead of myself here. That, that's the next one, sorry. They, uh, they were approachable and non-threatening. Now, in the neutral world, there was another strategy that arose, and this one is called cultural engagement. It's a little, it's different than, than the um, seeker sensitivity. <clears throat> Um, and that's actually where I got a, uh, ahead of myself. It's, it's the cultural engagement people that actually were the opposite of the culture warriors, which were combative and take over the culture. The cultural engagers were the opposite. Rather than fighting against the culture, they were explicitly positive towards it. They didn't denounce secular culture. But they confidently engaged that culture on its own terms. In the pluralistic, in the pluralistic public square, where the public square, where you have all these different ideas, you have, uh, yeah, you have secularism, you have atheism, you have all the different ideas that you have, and then you have also Christianity. And so, in this pluralistic public square, they confidently brought Christianity alongside all the others. And were confident that Christianity could stand on its own two feet in that realm. <clears throat> in the marketplace of idea. And they took it to that marketplace. Cultural engagement. The summary here is now. The deterioration of Christianity in the 60s and 70s led to the culture war. And to the seeker-sensitive strategies, 
And then the transition to the neutral world led to the emergence of the cultural engagement strategy. But now we are in the negative world. What is the evangelical strategy in this era? In a world where the general belief of Christianity are pushed aside and are even seen as dangerous and um, harmful, in Canada, on July 8th, not sorry, January 8th, a few weeks ago, a new law came in effect. After being fast-tracked through their parliament in December without much debate, this new law describes as a myth the belief that heterosexuality and cisgender identity are preferable. The, the idea that one kind of sexuality is preferable is a myth. Counseling that does not align with such a worldview now carries a potential five-year jail sentence to counsel someone that there is a preference, that there is actually a place. A preacher in the west of this country then uploaded a sermon onto YouTube a week later, which he clearly stated the truth about this issue. Just the truth, no warnings, no threats. This was YouTube's response. Our team has reviewed your content, and unfortunately, we think it violates our hate speech policy. We've removed the following content from YouTube. This is content. There is no such thing as transgender. You're either XX or XY. That's it. And they removed that. You can't, you can't say that in the, in the public anymore. And so they affirmed the Canadian law by banning firm opposition on their platform. Now, we are in a different era than we were in the 1990s and even in the early 2000s. We are in a negative era. But if we are, how much were the people that Peter was writing to? Those people that were in heaviness through manifold temptations. You know, they were experiencing various forms of persecution because if they were true Christians, like we have talked about, they were aliens and strangers in the midst of a pagan society. Now, the earliest persecution of the Christians came from the Jews, but as Christianity spread, the opposition began to come from those quarters as well, from the Gentiles as well. The persecution popped up where a church popped up. And uh, the best verse that, that actually um, identifies that, I'll just read it in First Thessalonians 2.14, talking about persecution. For ye brethren, talking to the Thessalonians, which was a Gentile church, you became followers of the churches of God, which is in Judea, the, the Jews that are in Jesus Christ. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. So Paul wrote First Peter just before 
or just after the persecution of Nero started. Um, so the persecution that Paul that Peter talks about later on in this verse, he talks different times about persecution. It could have been social persecution. It could have been religious persecution. It could have been um, financial persecution of various kinds, definitely social persecution, definitely. But it could have been legal persecution, which means from the top down, from the government. A hostile pagan society would slander and ridicule and discriminate against and even inflict physical abuse on Christians. Those who have been changed because of their faith in Christ. But a hostile government was capable of bringing the full force of law on those it was displeased with. So we don't know whether persecution had already begun or was soon going to. Times were changing in this time also. In Peter, when he was, he's writing here, you're talking about uncertain times. Peter seemed to indicate that greater, greater persecution was imminent. Nelson's Bible chart says that Christianity had not yet, when Peter wrote this letter, had not yet received the official Roman ban, but the stage was set for severe, severe persecution and martyrdom in the near future. You know, the church had faced a lot of opposition. You had false doctrine, you had false apostles, you had apostasy, and you had persecution. It was always with them, but it seems like things were changing now. And things are changing today. We don't know how fast things are going to change or how far this secular agenda will force its will on the rest of society. But it is moving. I mean, for a while, I thought, and maybe, we don't know the future. For a while, I thought maybe maybe the movement has been, it seems for right now, maybe the movement has been paused for a little bit. Maybe. I don't know. But you're going to have older people dying and you're going to have younger people coming along and many of those younger ones have no, their worldviews are different. They are indoctrinated into schools and at some point it just seems like it's going to happen. That's what it looks like today. Now, there is one other option that was presented to the evangelical world in the last several years. It's called the Benedict Option. Had you ever heard of the Benedict Option? How many have heard about that? Okay. <laughs> I thought it was more widespread. You're actually more familiar than you think of it. Um, the Benedict Option is, is the idea that society is irredeemable. It, it is now in a negative worldview. It is past redemption society. And so the option is to form communities and build 
communities and build disciples in that community and function in a pagan society, accept that society and function in it and be a witness to it. Uh, here's a few things that they have actually had aimed. They actually have communities. Intentionally formed disciples who can withstand the pressures of post-Christian America and offer the world a hopeful yet bold prophetic witness. In other words, the Benedict Option forms communities in which in turn forms Christians to interact and influence the world and yet not be assimilated to the world. That's basically what Jesus taught. Be in the world, but not of the world. Now, of all the strategies, this is the one that should have been all along. This, um, there, if you, if you look at into its, uh, they got most of it right. Now, there, there, uh, if you look at, uh, this whole movement, actually, it's not a very big movement, just a presentation, and not many people have accepted it, but, they they have come there because they have given up on that. But the true Christian, I think, that has always been his experience. Amen. That there is, there is, we are not, we are not going to change the culture. We're not going to win the culture and we're not going to win the world in that sense. Uh, passing laws and and that kind of thing, but we are called as Christian to have our communities and strengthen those in them and be able to stand, of course, against the world. But not only that, but hold out to the world a hopeful yet prophetic witness. So rather than trying to bring the culture into submission to the Christian ethic or engaging the culture in the marketplace of ideas, Christians should build communities and make disciples that are distinct and separate from the secular world. Back to the passage here. That was the bunny trail. <laughs> Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season it need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So we have moved into a negative cultural acceptance. But the devil has always opposed the church. Whether the culture has persecuted it or not, there's always been trials. There's always been false doctrine. There's always been false brethren. And there's always been the flesh. And there's always been the world and of course the devil, and they have always opposed and oppressed or opposed the true child of God and the collective body. So this heaviness that Peter is talking about is is it's a heaviness through 
manifold or many trials. You know, it's it's one thing. It's one thing to face a trial and go through it. It's another thing to face two or three or four or five all at once. And you think one is about over and the next one starts before the first one ends. And the next one starts before that one is over. And finally there's residual and there's trials. That's the picture of this heaviness. The picture of, of, um, there, there's trials that are, that weigh down. Not just once in a while, but right after each other. And I think of Job when we think of that. <laughs> that was the perfect, perfect storm. But the emphasis of this passage is not on the trial. I want you to remember that. It's because of our inheritance. Rejoicing because of your inheritance. Even though you be in the midst of these trials. And then it talks about the testing of faith and then it comes out. You know, there, it, 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 it ends there, it ends positively. <clears throat> I didn't get that inheritance yet, but I surely will. And in that, I will greatly rejoice. Right now, right today, whatever you're in, I want you to rejoice that you're getting an inheritance and it's coming. And it doesn't matter if you're in heaviness, whatever you're going through, whatever it is, rejoice in that inheritance. Not only that, but we're going to look more how that trial of your, that uh, heaviness, those trials are actually purification. They're testings. So your status is a little lower than you like. So you lost a little money or a little health or a little friendship because of your righteousness. So the public thinks you're a little backwards. Maybe they scorn you. And now we can go on to where we might be going. I don't know if anybody here. Do you get a fine because you don't agree with their program? So you have a loved one that goes to jail. Or you yourself because you don't call someone what they want to be called. Or you say you must. Or you counsel someone from the word of God and you're nailed for it. Those are trials. And I guess I'd like for us to weigh our trials. Our trials and our future inheritance. (laughs) Weigh them in a scale. After you've weighed them in a scale, your present trial and your future inheritance, and then sing a song. <laughs> because that's what Peter says is normal for a Christian. He says there is heaviness because of trials. And he's rejoicing because of inheritance. That's a normal Christian. This Christian who doesn't make sense He's going to have trials, and they're, they're real, and he, he faces those trials, and they're real, and he deals with them. But he's rejoicing. <clears throat> this is the only place the Greek word is translated as heaviness. Most places it's translated as grief or sorrow. It's to be sad or to be distressed. It's real grief, and it's real sorrow.
Uh, turn to Matthew twenty six, thirty seven. Because these strangers that were scattered about, they were experiencing sorrow, some of them more, some of them less. But let's look at our Lord Jesus, Matthew twenty six, thirty seven. And he took him to the garden, and he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and very heavy. That word sorrowful is the same word as heaviness there in First Peter. Very heavy is another word entirely. The Lord Jesus was sorrowful. And he had a trial. He had a temptation. It, if you look in the, in, um, if you look in the Garden of Gethsemane and you look and then you observe Jesus and he's sweating like the great drops of blood, you don't actually see rejoicing there, do you? I don't know. Did I miss something? Is there, is he rejoicing in there? I know angels came and ministered to him, but does it say anything at all about him rejoicing? I thought maybe I missed it, but I can't think of anything. But he was. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 to 4. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the, here it is, the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So he was looking at that cross, but he was looking beyond that cross. He was looking to what was going to happen, the same way we are to call to look beyond where we are today. And and this is particularly he would have had a way out. This is particularly if you're going through a trial, and then you are there because you are a Christian. And persecution fits in that perfectly. But it can be in other trials as well. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then tells us, consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye... Be wearied and faint in your mind. Ye are not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Maybe it's just against sin. You're having a problem of your life against the flesh. And we'll talk about, well, yeah, maybe a little bit about that later. Don't give up. Because you're a Christian, you don't do certain things. And it's hard. But... The Lord Jesus, is. Uh, the scripture says, as you were, consider him. This is how he did it. It's for that joy. It's for that victory out ahead. I will endure this today. We are, for the most part, still in a bubble. When we talk about the negative worldview, that has very little to do with our day-to-day lives today here. Because we are in a, the people, the area where we live, the people we relate to generally are not, they're not in opposition. Uh, I, I sort of envision these bubbles getting smaller and disappearing, or if we go out into other areas. But striving against sin, I want to bring that up. Uh, Paul, uh, Harold Martin 
Hal Martin uh, had a list of uh, four, when he took the sins of the flesh there in Galatians 5, he separated in four different headings. And so we're going to strive against sin and we're going to do whatever is necessary. And if we're in heaven, if the temptation is great, if we're in trial because of it, that uh, it may be necessary that we are in trial, but we need to not, yeah, move forward from that. So Harold said about the sins of impurity, there's adultery, fornication, impurity. The sins of idolatry, which is living or loving something else more than God, and of course witchcraft. The sins of hostility, which is strife and jealousy and anger, rivalry and divisions. And the sins of intemperance, the drunkenness and gluttony and revelings, or that's wild parties. So even if we experience little as a negative culture, we as the people of God will have always and will always experience the, the oppression of our flesh, which we heard this week. The devil and our fleshly desires, they are aligned with the devil. We have an alignment inside of us. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us, but there's an alignment inside of us that aligns itself with the enemy. <laughs> that was brought out so clearly this week by Brother Dil Gish. So at this point, we we are not much in the negative worldview uh, world experience, rather. But I would my my this is not a prophecy. This is just a my belief. <laughs> That in a, it, as as the older people die and younger people come on and don't understand it, that they um, there will a Pharaoh will arise who doesn't know Joseph, and there will be societal oppression. That's my belief system. That's why one reason they're changing. Uh, back then, he didn't know his history. Somehow. In his upbringing, they changed the history curriculum so that he didn't know what happened back then. And that's exactly what they're doing today. <laughs> Whether they'll be successful, I don't know. First Peter four twelve to 14, a few verses here. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fire trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye shall be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. I, I, I didn't check it. That might be the word blessed. Blessed are ye. I'm not sure. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, God, talking about God, is glorified. Well, maybe we should view our trials a little differently. I think God views them a little differently than we do. 
If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, ye are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth on you. Do you want the spirit of glory and of God on you? I don't think you should go out and seek persecution, but I don't think we should try to eliminate it. And the trial of your faith. You know, when they design a new machine, they take it through testings. It's a prototype. They want to know where the weak spots are because they want to purify this machine. So only the good parts of the machine remain there and all the bad parts are eliminated. And maybe some parts that aren't there yet can be added or changed or adapted. Well, that's what happens when our faith is tested. We are, we are, well, you don't have gold. You don't have to be afraid of gold. Let's say it this way. I don't know. I don't ever did gold. We already um, burned down uh, maple syrup, maple sap for syrup, and we burned it. You can burn maple syrup. I don't know if you can burn gold or not, but gold will not be destroyed. So whatever gold you have, the trial will not destroy it. And here's the last verse I'd like to read here. Talking about suffering. For then, for, for, for as much then, First uh, Peter 4, 1 and 2. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, suffered in the flesh, Christ did for us, arm yourself like lives with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of the will of men, but to the will of God. Another benefit of being tempted in trials when you're suffering. It helps you deal with your sin issues and so on. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptation, that the trial of your faith be much more precious than of gold that perisheth. Though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory, glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So may God bless you. And may he, may he take us on with him in suffering.